Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Today, Thanks. we're going to conclude our series on worship, um, specifically into the deep, being overwhelmed by worship. I am, and I feel like I've communicated this intelligently enough, um, I am distressed, uh, saddened by what the church calls worship. When we can honestly say with confidence that worship is the time in our service where we sing to God, then we are not worshipers at all. We have completely lost our understanding that we serve an eternal God that is with us every moment of every day. The Bible says that he is near us, that he is omnipresent, which means he's wherever we are in all places at the same time. When we don't recognize or forget that that God exists and he exists right here, we forget that he deserves right here worship, that he deserves in my office space worship. He deserves in my car's worship. He deserves in my home worship. And when I become a person of worship, what happens because I keep that consciousness of God's presence, I'm less likely to sin. How many of you guys are less likely to sin or do something contrary to what your parents would have you do? When you were 16 years old, you didn't go around cussing your mama, right? With your daddy in the room. You may likely, more likely have been doing it when they weren't in the room. But the second that authority showed up, you started acting right. Well, let me tell you, the authority, the greatest authority in all of the universe is already in the room and is in every room you're always in. And so because of that, you should walk according to that authority being present in the room and be a person of worship, not sinning. Everybody all right? But sadly, and it's the whole premise of this series, is I don't think we do that. I think we've isolated worship. And then we wonder why our services, our lives, our, all the stuff that we find ourselves involved with in falls so flat and shows so short of the promises of what God promises us in his word. They fall flat and short because we fall flat and short, not because God fell flat and short. God's going to do what God says he'll do if you'll do what you say you'll do. Amen. And so that's the reason why we've been in this series, because I really do want to change, not just over four weeks, talk about worship. I want to change the vocabulary of our church. And the vocabulary of our church has to be that we worship at all times. When we meet together, it's a worship and fellowship. When we meet together, or when we give, it's a worship and giving. When we do the announcements, it's worship in opportunities of service. When we sing, it's worship and song. When we listen to the word, it's worship and the declaration of the word. When we go to leave, it's again, worship and fellowship. Everything that the church does should be an act of worship, an act of reverence and adoration towards a God who deserves it. The only God who deserves that worship and adoration or that reverence and adoration. Amen. And so, 
That's what we've talked about. Today, I want to talk about worship as communion. And there's a reason I've left this to the end, because we need to understand what communion is. Communion is the exchanging of intimate thoughts and actions in service to Christian worship. When I say communion, what do you guys think? Hey, we're going to have communion this week. You think about this, right? You think about the the elements of the sacrament or the sacrament itself. The fact that there's going to be bread and there's going to be grape juice and we're going to separate it out and we're going to pray over it and we're going to receive it together. That is the sacrament of communion, but it is a representation of communion. Communion itself is intimate relationship. My wife and I have communion together because we are intimately familiar with one another. I can have communion with a friend because we are intimately familiar with one another. I can have communion with God because through Christ Jesus, we have intimate communion with one another. And then we show and represent the intimacy involved in that communion and the benefits of that communion through the act of communion, which is the sacrament of communion, taking the bread and taking the cup. Amen? I don't want us to get so lost in things that they become tradition to us. And sadly, I think communion, sacrament, has become a tradition in the church, and not a, there's not been a true understanding of what it is. It has to be relationship first, or it's not anything at all. And so... Communion is one of the most beautiful things. And I've seen some beautiful things. In my physical life, I've seen, I I was in Iraq when I was 19 years old. And talk about just an absolute foreign concept. Being out in the desert, sleeping on a cot. Miles from nowhere, no residual lights anywhere. Look up at the sky in the middle of the night, and you don't see 10 or 15 stars or 20 stars or even a million stars. You see trillions of stars, all different colors, layers upon layers of them as though they are ribbons laying on top of ribbons. That's what the desert night sky looks like. That's what the Creator made for us. I got to see the beauty of that when I was in Iraq. I've been in the Rocky Mountains, and I've watched the sun come up over them and pierce the sky, and it it appeared as though the whole landscape was on fire. I've been in um, India, where the colors, just every color everywhere, from their clothes to their buildings, just explodes. It's just a beautiful, just massive humanity. I've been to Jerusalem. On the Mount of Olives, you look over into the city of Jerusalem and you're standing over it, and it's probably about a mile away, and you see the sun in the sunset hit that city in such a way, it's it's surreal. It's heavenly to see because somehow the the rocks in that region that are mined, um, that are cut for stones, are white. They're not gray. They're they're white. 
And when the sun hits that in the sunset, it literally, the whole city glistens. The old city walls glisten in Jerusalem. I've seen some beautiful things. My grandfather and I drove through the United States, around the United States before I went in the Army because he told me, he said, if you're going to serve this country, you should see see some of it. So he took me on a 30-day road trip. And I can remember driving through the Midwest and seeing antelope play, you know, run and jump. And and they were just, they went on and on and on forever. I'm just trying to paint a picture of you for you if, and everybody has their own individual experiences of how beautiful the world is. We've all seen beautiful things. Amen. But all of it pales compared to the provision offered in communion. Communion is beautiful worship, and it's beautiful because it's the memorialization of Christ's death on our behalf. It's the remembrance of what could have been as opposed to what will be. And what I mean by that is we were judged. We were destined for hell, separate from God for all of eternity, for our sinful action. But Jesus Christ took action so that we wouldn't have to endure that fate. It is remembering that sacrifice in his death that gives us life. That's beautiful. You can take all the landscapes in the world, all the pictures in the universe, and if you'll look at the cross and see the work done there, you'll find it to be more beautiful than any other thing. But we come to realize the significance of it the importance of it in the act of communion. Now, I want again, I want to separate the two which, between communion as intimate relationship and communion as the sacrament representing the intimate relationship, both equally important, but both need to be talked about. In Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26, he says, while you were eating, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I want to pay attention to something. Every time I've ever heard this taught, it's taught alongside the other um, communion verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, different places where it talks about the Last Supper. And it focuses on, like we talked about a moment ago, the sacrament of communion. Take this, for it is my body. Take this, for it is my blood. But I want you to pay attention to the oft- often overlooked, most overlooked piece of this. And it is. it says, while they, everybody say they, were eating. If you'll look at all three of the synoptic gospels, which are the gospels that run pretty parallel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to read about the Last Supper, the communion service. 
And in every one of them, it'll say something like that. They were together. They were sitting. They were taking. I bring this up because we overlook the fact that they were together. And I want us to pay attention to the fact today, almost as much as I want us to pay attention to the actual communion elements themselves, that they came together, that they were in communion together. He was with his disciples, those who he was the most intimate relationship with. He was spending time with them. This could be overlooked, and it often is, but it can't be. Because our communion, if it's to be communion, is intended as an act of fellowship and proves fellowship. You know who Jesus didn't have communion with? Everyone he met. You know who Jesus had communion with? The people he was in intimate relationship with. That's why we take communion together at church. This is why we take communion together in our homes, because those are our most intimate relationships, because we have an intimate relationship with one another, because we have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We have fellowship through Christ because of the work of Christ, and it is in that fellowship that we have communion. I hear people all the time say, I don't need church. I'm a Christian. I completely disagree. You don't, you don't actually need church to be a Christian, but you need church for fellowship so that you maintain your Christianity. Because as soon as you stop coming to church, you're going to separate yourself from the herd and the enemy will attack you and you will fall. People are all, not me, I'm strong. No, you're not strong, you're stupid, and you're arrogant. Because the animal, the hunter, always goes after the weak, never the strong. And the strong will always be found together. Amen? Communion, fellowship, intimate relationship is horribly important, incredibly important to the vitality, to the life of the church, and to you individually. And we have that fellowship. First, in Christ Jesus. God reconciled us through His Son to have fellowship with Him. I'm about to tell you all some stuff you've probably heard before, but I want you to hear me with fresh ears. We were at enmity with God. There was a time in your life, if you were a believer, that you were at war with God, at conflict with God. God was going to and deserved to crush you, to kill you, to pour his wrath out on you because you were in direct rebellion to his divine authority. You're all, my God, my God, a loving God would never do that. Let me tell you, a loving God would never allow sin into the city of heaven because he's a, not just a loving God, he is a perfectly just loving God. And because we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, we were in direct rebellion to what he told us to do, which is to live righteously. We are sinful both by birth and by action. You know what that means? That means we didn't have fellowship with God. 
Our fellowship was broken. Our mind was set against him because our bodies act out, acted out against him too. Everybody hear me? Romans 8, 6, and 7 says this, For the mind set on the flesh is death. That's pretty profound. Ain't a whole lot of beating around the bush there. You focus on what makes you happy. You focus on the passions of your own flesh. That's death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Did you catch that? Flesh is what? Death. But the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Grab a hold of that. I'm talking about the, the benefit of true fellowship with God, true communion with God is life, eternal, and peace right now. If you don't have peace, the Bible says you need to pray in supplication with a heart of thanksgiving, and you will have peace. I say this all the time, this prayer supplication with a heart of thanksgiving implies that there's already something during your prayer time to give thanks for. You know what that is? That's faith. I give thanks because in my prayer and supplication, I'm thankful in my faith because I know through my faith, God answers my prayers in the name of Christ Jesus. And if I know that anything I ask according to God's will in the name of Jesus by faith, he will answer those prayers according to his word. What am I worried about? That's the benefit of grace. That's the benefit of communion. That's the benefit of fellowship. Guys, Christians shouldn't walk around with their mouth full of mealy craziness. We should walk around being joyful and loving and kind and expectant because we serve a God that is expectant and we belong to him, no longer in the flesh, but in communion to him. Amen. Y'all should be as excited about this as I am because there's an eternal consequence for the truths that I'm telling you. You're all, my life's horrible right now. A hundred thousand years from now, before eternity even begins, you won't remember what happened yesterday. Most of you won't remember what I preached on this evening. But I'm here to tell you that there is a God who loves you enough that he has snatched you out of that enmity, not because of anything that you did, but because of who he is. Woo. Because of our enmity, we were separate from him. It's not enough that he just didn't like us. But the Bible says he didn't like us. He had no reason to like us. We did nothing that he would want us to do. We were in absolute, complete rebellion to his authority. And because of that, we were separate from him. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 says, remember. What do we do during communion? We remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. When we take communion in a little while, I want you to remember this but that you are no more. 
that you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So as I'm holding these communion elements, as I'm looking at the sacraments, I need to remember there was a time in my past where I was absolutely destined for destruction, separate from God. But that's not the end of those verses. The end of those verses end like this. But now, everybody say, but now. Y'all going to get excited there. I'm going to get out of here and just start slapping folks. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far away have been brought near by what? By the blood of Jesus. Not by your own blood, not by your own sacrifice, but because there is a God that loves you enough to pull you to himself by pushing his son away from himself. Woo, man, that's good. It's heartbreaking that he had to do it because of the situation and the condition of the lives that we lived. But aren't we grateful that we get to? Hmm. But we are no longer separate from him. Jesus took upon his own body the enmity that was ours. How did he do that? I already told you, we were sinners, both by birth and by action. But he took our sin. He became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he might become the righteousness of God in him. He became, we need to understand, the greatest work was his perfection, taking our imperfection so he could take our punishment for our sin. The perfect, set aside the perfect, humbled himself to the point of the cross, took the cup that he didn't really want to take, asked God to remove from him, which is the wrath of God, the separation from God, became separated so that we could be drawn near. He took the wrath of God. Not only did he become sin, but when he became sin, he took the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Y'all ever been mad? Anybody in here ever been mad? Just one time. You ever been so mad you just want to rip somebody in half? Like you just want to go up to them, you just want to snatch your head off their neck? Amen. And everybody in here has at some point, probably you didn't do it, probably didn't do it. But we've all been there. Somebody did something to us, to our family, to someone we cared about or our stuff. And we just, we'd had all we can stand and we wanted to pour absolute wrath out on them. You remember what that felt like? In your mind, they deserve that. As horrible as that would be, let me tell you, your wrath is not perfect wrath. God's wrath is perfect wrath. He was going to pour perfect wrath out on you. I don't even know how to define what that means, but I know what wrath that I felt like feels like, and I wouldn't want God to pour even that out on me. But Jesus Christ became sin so that he could become the replacement for the wrath that I deserved. 
You want to know why Jesus got beat on like he was beat on, the reason he was tortured the way he was tortured, why he was nailed to a cross? So that he might absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. Everything that Jesus Christ endured on the cross, we deserved to endure on the cross. But he also assumed the penalty that we owed. All for the sake of relationship, all for the sake of communion. And that penalty is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that's beautiful. All of those things, listen to me. All of those things is what makes communion worthy of our most sacred worship. And what is our most sacred worship? The giving of our entire lives to it. Amen? I believe that. Do you believe that? Jesus died suffered, absorbed the wrath. He was the propitiation, which means he appeased the wrath and penalty of God. He became death so you wouldn't have to receive death. He absorbed the wrath so you didn't have to absorb the wrath. He literally climbed up into your seat and took your punishment. All so that we could sit with him, as the disciples sat with him on on the night of the Last Supper. Number two, communion is grace. If you didn't catch the first one, communion is fellowship. I don't think I actually said that. <clears throat> Number two, communion is grace. The graces of God are available in communion. And this is where I want you to pay attention. I want you to pay attention the whole time. The graces of God are in communion. Everything we've been given by God is undeserving. For whatever reason, God, as perfect love, decided that he was going to give us that which we didn't deserve and not give us what we did deserve, which was judgment. That's called mercy. He extended mercy to us in the form of grace. And the Bible says in communion, there are two graces that have specifically been administered to us. The first of those graces is the grace of healing is available to us. It says this, he took some bread and blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Here's the pure, unadulterated truth. Isaiah says that Jesus' body was pierced, crushed, scourged, and our healing was made available. Our complete healing was made available through the crushing of his body. What that means is where he took that whole loaf of bread representing his body and broke, I want you to picture this in your head, digging his fingers into it and pulling it apart such was his body, so that our body, being a part 
through the work of his hands, might be put back together. He was broken for our wholeness. I'm convinced, as we all should be, that there is no better time to pray for healing if you need healing than in the taking of communion because it is literally the extension of the grace of healing to us. And so I'm going to stop prior to finishing this sermon and I'm going to ask if there's anyone in this room who needs healing, I'm going to ask you to come up here. I want to pray for you there's anybody in this room who needs, needs healing, and I know that's not big dramatic, it's just I came very pointed with it. But let me tell you, when he says, by the stripes of Jesus you are healed, you are healed. Jesus Christ took your diseases and your infirmities. The Bible says that he knows what we need before we ask, and even as we ask, he delivers. These are all truths of the Word of God. And because he died so that we might be whole, so if he was broken so that we might be whole, we know it's in his will that we be whole, and anything we ask according to his will, he hears us. And because he hears us, we have what we've asked for. And so I would ask, if there's anyone that needs healing, I want to pray for you. Play some music. Come on up. What you got? I've got... Uh...
Healing isn't the only grace available. There's a, there's a grace of cleansing. In 27 and 28, it says, And when he took a cup and had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for transgression, for forgiveness of sin. The new covenant is that we no longer have to sacrifice animals for our righteousness. That Jesus Christ became our righteousness and we became righteous in him. That he was the one sacrifice necessary for all time. That his blood was shed so that we might be washed clean of the sin that we walked in. Communion is is a sacrament. It's a thing the church should do. But can I tell you, outside of a relationship, that's not possible. Outside of accepting the brokenness of his body, the, the blood that was shed, because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And with the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, and our acceptance of that truth is the atonement for the sins we've committed. Without those things, we have no chance of an eternity without, without, with God. And so we're going to take communion today, physical communion today, in remembrance of the work that he did. As they pass it out as they do. I want to talk to you. If we've already prayed for healing, we need to pray for cleansing. And Paul addresses this to the Corinthian church. In chapter 11, you guys are familiar with this. I bring this up every time we have communion service. He addresses to the Corinthian church he says, you need, to, you need to check yourself. You need to make sure that you're taking communion properly. When he says this, he says, whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, which means having not accepted the communion, the relationship, the intimacy, and align themselves to it, will be guilty of the blood or the body and the blood of the Lord. I don't want to be guilty of those things. He says, but a man must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. It's the reason why we just prayed for healing. Because if you take it wrongly and you get sick, then if you take it rightly, then you must walk in wholeness. And for that reason, I'm going to ask you, where are you in relation to the Lord? One of the questions that I get asked is, who takes communion and who doesn't? People outside of a relationship with Jesus ought not align themselves with Jesus. People who don't know the Lord, who aren't saved, shouldn't take communion. Because the Bible says you place a curse on yourself when you do that. 
But even if we are in relationship, before we take communion, we have to ask God to cleanse us. My third point today is that communion is repentance. Angela and I have been married for almost 17 years. And I will tell you, without me occasionally saying I'm sorry, which I, I happen to do this week, without me saying I'm sorry, our intimacy deteriorates. Without me being apologetic where I fall short, our intimacy deteriorates. If our relationship, as imperfect as it is, happens like that, how do you think the relationship between you and the Lord is as perfect as it is? We have to come to a place of repentance and not only live a lifestyle of worship, but because we are worshipers, live a lifestyle of repentance. Amen? And so I'm going to pray. I don't know where you are, but I'm going to pray. If there's a sin that stands between you and the Lord, if there's something that you need to ask God to forgive you for, I'm going to let you off the hook early. He already knows. When I got in trouble in school, I got home, my papa was there on the porch. He knew it already. He was just waiting for me to tell him the truth. God already knows. You're not hiding it. Crawl up in your dad's lap and tell him what you've done. And watch the love pour out of him.